states can never be certain about each other's intentions. And therefore, the best guarantee of survival is to be a hegemon, because no other state can seriously threaten such a mighty power. Since no state is likely to achieve global hegemony, the world is condemned to perpetual great power competition. We will go back to conflict, and there is no way that China is going to rise without U.S.-China conflict. That's Jeffrey Sachs, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jeffrey Sachs, Wars of Hegemonic Competition. Hegemony is from the Greek, meaning authority, rule, political supremacy. Since 1945, the United States has been the global hegemon. That is changing now. The U.S. recently issued its annual threat assessment. It makes for interesting reading. It lists the various threats Washington faces, and it repeats the embedded line that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked. But the report's main focus is on China. It says, quote, China has the capability to directly attempt to alter the rules-based global order in every realm and across multiple regions as a near-peer competitor that is increasingly pushing to change global norms. Now, the phrase rules-based global order is vintage Orwell. Translated, it means that Washington rules the world and you'd better follow its diktats. But China is no pushover. It has emerged as the major challenge to U.S. hegemony. Thus, the danger of conflict is increasing. Our guest today is Jeffrey Sachs. He's an internationally renowned economist, author, and educator. He's director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he is university professor, the highest academic rank. He served as special advisor to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He has twice been named among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders. He gave the Alama Iqbal Lecture sponsored by the Oxford-Pakistan program at Oxford University in the UK in early March. And now, Jeffrey Sachs. I've been thinking a lot uh, about uh, the Ukraine war. I'd say morning, noon, and night. I'm very concerned and very upset because this is a war that is extraordinarily dangerous. It's a war that never should have happened. This is not simply a war that Putin decided unprovoked to launch in uh, February 24th, 2022. That's nonsense for anyone who has been around. Just to tell you, I'm an old guy. I've been around. I was an advisor to President Mikhail Gorbachev. I was an advisor to President Boris Yeltsin. I was an advisor to President Leonid Kuchma, the first president of independent Ukraine, and to others. 
what you are being told about this conflict and others is not true. That's not a hunch. That's not an academic idea. That is direct knowledge firsthand for more than 30 years. And I want to explain these ideas. But most importantly, I want this to be a constructive session, problem solving. We're here to talk about international relations. Geopolitics is part of the field of international relations. International relations is a field of study of the interaction of states. There are many sound and good ideas in international relations theory, but I want to make a basic proposition that international relations theory is not just a description of the causes of war or the causes of war and peace, but the prescription of the way to peace as well. International relations theory should be inherently a normative field, not only a positive or descriptive field. It's not good enough to explain war. We don't have medical schools to explain disease. We have medical schools to cure disease. We don't have schools of public health to explain epidemics. We have schools of public health to prevent or to control epidemics. It's not for those disciplines merely prediction or merely explanation. If you are a cosmologist, it probably is a matter of explanation that you're after. But if you are in a discipline such as health or international relations or economics, I believe you are inherently in a moral field. Moral in the sense that you are inherently trying to improve the world. And the field of international relations should be a field to solve the problems of war. I want to hear from the universities how this war can end, not simply how to escalate more armaments. We're not hearing enough of that from the universities, frankly. And I want international relations theory to address the prescriptions for peace. And I'm going to give you a few. I believe that this is our business to try to design better solutions. One of the reasons for this is a very important statement by President John F. Kennedy. He said in his inaugural address, the world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. That's January 20th, 1961. This is the modern reality. We have technologies that are remarkable, so remarkable that if we put our mind to it, poverty could be ended. Education could be accessible to every child in the world. We could have universal health coverage. We could ensure that basic economic needs are met by all. We could give young people the tools for productive lives. 
this is all within reach and not just within reach in a uh, idealistic sense, but in a very practical sense. But those same technologies, that same breakthrough in science of how semiconductors work or how solid state physics works is also the same technology that enables us to make thermonuclear weapons to destroy the world through nuclear war or through our reckless abandonment of the environment. Uh, It's something that Kennedy didn't think about. He was clearly referring to nuclear war. One thing to keep in mind in my talk is that Kennedy came in more sensitive to this subject than any president of modern history, yet he nearly stumbled into full-scale nuclear war in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is something telling for us also, because the world is difficult and complicated. And even if you come in with the wisdom of this statement, because of how state power works and misfunctions and terrible blunders by Kennedy in the early stages of his government, especially the invasion of Cuba in the spring of 1961 and the lies that he told about it initially by his actions and the subsequent actions of the Soviet chairman Nikita Khrushchev brought us to not just the brink of nuclear war, but seconds of within the launch of nuclear war. And that's how dangerous our world is. That's what I want you to know. And therefore, when you're told, don't worry, you're reading something from foolish people. Because if you're not worried, you don't get it. And we need to pull back from the brink through the things I'm going to talk about, rather than to push to the brink in this lackadaisical way that passes for the mainstream media. So one of the powerful books of international relations is written by one of America's leading scholars. And I have been together with him on this of trying to explain the Ukraine war through the provocations of the United States. John Mearsheimer is professor at University of Chicago. And he wrote a very powerful book in 2002 called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. It talks about the tragedy of great power politics, meaning the wars that we fight. And while I admire John Mearsheimer enormously and we're friends, I want to go farther than this. Because Mearsheimer says that the tragedy is inevitable of great power politics. And I don't believe we can accept tragedy as our fate especially in the world that John F. Kennedy described. Tragedy in the past meant World War I or World War II. Tragedy in the future means the end of the world, because our technologies have brought the end of the world within reality, especially nuclear war. 
So we can't, in my opinion, accept an international relations, however descriptive, however predictive it is, we can't accept that as the end of international relations. We have to accept that as the start of international relations because we need not the tragedy of great power politics, but the solution to the tragedy of great power politics. We need the great power peace. So what John Mearsheimer wrote is very powerful. And I just want to read it because it's really (laughs) what is keeping me up at night and keeping me worried. He wrote, the sad fact is that international politics has always been a ruthless and dangerous business, and it is likely to remain that way. Although the intensity of their competition waxes and wanes, great powers fear each other and always compete with each other for power. The overriding goal of each state is to maximize its share of world power, which means gaining power at the expense of other states. But great powers do not merely strive to be the strongest of all the great powers, although that is a welcome outcome. Their ultimate aim is to be the hegemon. That is the only great power in the system. And he says there are three features that lead to that. The absence of central authority, so international anarchy. In other words, there's no global leviathan in Hobbesian terms. There's only anarchy at the top. And then states thrusting for power within that anarchic system. Second, the fact that states have offensive military capability. So you have to be aware that someone can launch the surprise attack or the first strike and that that's a devastating fact. And third, that states can never be certain about each other's intentions. And therefore, the best guarantee of survival is to be a hegemon because no other state can seriously threaten such a mighty power. Now, we can already reason. Isn't it a tragedy if everyone is trying to be number one? There's a little bit of a paradox there, that that means endless strife, an impossibility of different nations achieving that goal, and perhaps everybody ending up dead as a result of that struggle. But that is John Mearsheimer's uh, point, that this is the tragedy of great power politics. And he says, since no state is likely to achieve global hegemony, the world is condemned to perpetual great power competition. That's realism in international relations theory. And they're is nobody that has developed that theory more effectively and cogently than John Mearsheimer. And incidentally, this book was written in 2002 at a time when the U.S. had normal relations with China. It had normal relations with Russia. It seemed a calm world. The American exceptionalists felt very great about themselves that it's the American world after all. And Nobody much was talking about great power tragedy. And John Mearsheimer, to his descriptive and predictive credit, said, this will not go on 
we will go back to conflict. And there is no way that China is going to rise without U.S.-China conflict. And he predicted all of this absolutely correctly. And that is the power of these ideas. But they are tragic. And so they are not quite powerful enough because we have not yet had the power to surmount the tragedy. And that's what we need. So I want to talk about peace. And I want to talk about peace as the avoidance of war. And I want to talk about international relations and war as I see it. Uh, I would like uh, to see the solutions come out of international relations as a normative theory of peace. So I believe we need to start with differentiating the kinds of wars that we are aiming to avoid because they're not the same in all contexts. And therefore, we're not talking about the same thing when we talk about peace in different contexts. I want to distinguish three categories of war. One are wars of the empire or wars of plunder. A second is the great power conflicts. That is the fights for who's number one. And the third is inter-ethnic conflict, conflict between groups. And I believe these are distinctive and they require not only distinctive predictive theories, but also distinctive prescriptive uh, normative approaches of how to stop these wars. So what are wars of plunder? Uh, wars of imperial plunder certainly include the British conquest of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, they include uh, the European conquest of Africa at the end of uh, the 19th century. They include uh, the United States destruction of Native American nations, especially in the second half of the 19th century, a kind of series of genocides that aren't even counted as genocides because when you're number one, you don't have to explain, and history somehow disappears. Uh, but uh, this was a, a period of destroying many nations in the United States. It was interesting to me, since I am generally sympathetic to China on most issues uh, and not fearing China, as I'm going to explain, somebody wrote to me, well, Mr. Sachs, you're so naive. Look at how China treats its various minorities. Uh, and I could only say, well, yes, the United States killed those minorities. Uh, one group we enslaved and then kept under apartheid for another century, the African-Americans. Uh, so I think the Americans treated their minorities worse uh, they're not even present anymore, uh, except small numbers on Indian reservations. So it's all a matter of perspective. So these are wars of imperial plunder. Great power wars are wars of hegemonic competition. Uh, we could go back uh, to the Peloponnesian Wars. We could even go back to, uh, in, in a way, the wars of uh, Persia and uh, ancient Greece uh, that Herodotus wrote about in the first history, the histories. Uh, 
but uh, Athens and Sparta of the Peloponnesian uh, Wars from 431 BC to 404 BC certainly qualifies as uh, hegemonic wars, but within a smaller context. World War I was clearly a great power conflict, World War II. And then we should be clear that there are also proxy wars that are hegemonic wars. The Vietnam War was not a war really between the United States and Vietnam. It was a war between the United States and the communist world, especially the Soviet Union uh, and uh, China, uh, in which Vietnam was the battleground. The Ukraine war is not a war between Russia and Ukraine, despite what you read every day. It is primarily a war between Russia and the United States, uh, and it needs to be understood in those terms. And then there are inter-ethnic wars. Israel and Palestine is an example of that. Uh, Ethiopian war that is an inter-ethnic war. India-Pakistan wars are complicated, of course, but to a significant extent, they are inter-ethnic wars. Uh, and uh, these are quite distinctive. Uh, the wars are not hegemonic wars. The wars are clashes of cultures, clashes of societies, uh, and uh, clashes of religion, uh, actually. So basically, wars of plunder are wars of the strong versus the weak, and they are wars of injustice. Wars of great powers are wars of the strong versus the strong, and they're wars basically of competition. And wars of inter-ethnic conflict, I will say, are wars of the weak versus the weak, people who are fearful uh, and fighting out of fear uh, rather than out of a sense of uh, wanting to dominate. They want to escape from fear. So as an economist, my observations are that economic change of various kinds lead to wars. And I wrote a book in 2020 called The Ages of Globalization, uh, where I describe how technology and institutional change and physical geography interact to produce long-term global change across many different ages of globalization. But one of the notable facts of that uh, study is that each new epoch driven by technological change was typically accompanied by war. And technology, technological change in various ways leads to changes of relative power and changes of relative power lead to wars of the kinds that I've described. So technological divergence, meaning that the more advanced technological countries gain some kind of decisive advantage over the others, lead to wars of plunder. Imperial wars are basically wars in which there is a more powerful adversary, usually based on more powerful economics and underlying military technologies that allow for an expansion of empire. Technological convergence means that the poor countries are catching up with the richer countries. Surprisingly, that's also conducive to war but typically to the wars of competition, because as the poorer countries are narrowing the gap with the richer countries, 
the two come into direct competition with each other. So periods of technological convergence tend to be periods of wars of competition. And I believe that's the dominant form of war that we have now and why the great power conflicts are raging the way they are. Shared vulnerability of various kinds, even economic vulnerabilities, poverty, and so forth, lead to wars of fear and to interethnic violence. There is a absolute fact that at higher income levels, less hunger, longer life expectancy, inter-ethnic or intergroup uh, struggles tend to diminish in fervor. There is the added fact of poverty on t- and desperation over resources on top of the facts of the intergroup stress that are conducive to this third kind of war. So just as some quick example, the great engine of 19th century divergence was the steam engine. This is probably the most important invention of the last thousand years, uh, in fact, in both economics and in geopolitics. It happened to be invented uh, in Britain, uh, in actually uh, in a, a workshop in the University of Glasgow uh, by a very skilled and, and a very creative inventor, James Watt. And he was able to improve John Newcomen's 1712 steam engine and to patent a new steam engine in 1776. And boy, was that a good thing to do from the point of view of economic power productivity, industrialization, inter-ocean transport, and military force. Britain became the first industrial society. It towered over the rest of the world in financial military might, and that led to the so-called Second British Empire of the 19th century. So we see one of the great turns of history. These are the usual data that Angus Madison developed on global output. As late as 1820, Asia had 60% of world output. And as late as 1820, the Indian subcontinent was the manufacturing center of the world. It was still the textile center of the world. In 1790, the steam engine was connected to a belt to move the spinning jennies and to move the power looms, and the rest, uh, one could say, history. Britain used every trick in the book, uh, protectionism, control over the ports, military force, and mechanization to destroy the Indian textile industry in the early 19th century uh, and to subjugate India afterwards in 1820. Asia had 60% of the world population, and then it went on a sharp downward course thereafter, and it reached its nadir in 1950 at 20% of the world population. So in 1820, per capita income in Asia and the rest of the world was roughly the same, not exactly, but roughly the same, and per capita income in 
Asia plummeted, per capita income in the North Atlantic region, meaning Europe and North America, Canada and the United States soared. And these lines cross. It happens around 1857. Uh, that's a coincidence because this is just a linear extrapolation. But 1857 is, of course, the notable date of the uh, Sepoy Rebellion, uh, the Indian Rebellion. And in 1858, the whole Indian subcontinent falls under what becomes the British Raj. Uh, and that change of power was a uh, war of plunder made possible by this differential economic performance. Now, notice that the largest gap between the North Atlantic and Asia occurs in 1950, basically. And from then on, the lines start to converge again. This is extremely important to understand because it is in 1947 that India and Pakistan become independent countries. And 1949, the People's Republic of China becomes a new independent country after decades of invasion and civil war. And it is that independence which gives the base for a subsequent era of convergence. So broadly speaking, in economic history, the period from 1800 to 1950 is a period of divergence growing power of the North Atlantic relative to the rest of the world. It's the period of European imperialism, high imperialism, not the first colonies, but the conquests of large land areas. The period after 1950, broadly speaking, is the period of economic convergence. The basic reason for convergence is sovereignty. The basic reason that sovereignty matters is that this is the beginning of mass education. Pakistan and India in 1950 had illiteracy of 90%. There was no mass education because that's the essence of empire is do not provide education. And without education, there was no economic possibility other than subjugation. And so independence is fundamental for changing the direction. And that's why the world changes, because that is the end of World War II, and it's the beginning of independence across the world from European empires, and it enabled the beginning of mass education. And the United States, in my view, is the most violent country in the world after 1950, and yet these are supposed liberal democracies. But the basic point is liberal democracy has almost nothing to do with peaceful foreign policy. Foreign policy is about relative power. Uh, and uh, Britain used its relative power to conquer a large part of the world. And for the parts that it didn't conquer, it at least invaded uh, or went to war at various times. So don't ever make the confusion of liberalism or democracy and peace. These are different concepts. You're listening to Jeffrey Sachs' Wars of Hegemonic Competition. This is Independent Alternative Radio. 
To get copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So what are the, the main solutions to wars of plunder? There are two. One, technological convergence. Narrow the gap so that the rich can't exploit the poor. And the second is collective security to protect the weak from the strong through collective security, such as the United Nations aims to achieve. Now, as I've said, the end of European imperial rule led to a shift from divergence to convergence. And one might have hoped that would end the imperial wars. Of course, there was a trailing edge of 30 years of the final stages of imperialism, for example, the Vietnam War, which (laughs) raged until 1975, which was a war of independence from France and then taken over by the United States. But by and large, uh, the shift from divergence to convergence reduced the wars of plunder without question. And why the age of convergence? As I've said, independent states introduced education. There was an accelerated diffusion of technology, markets for technology, the spread of digital technologies is nearly ubiquitous, even to some of the poorest places in the world. There have still been wars of plunder and uh, major powers still defeat weaker nations, but they don't subdue them anymore. Algeria, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria are all examples of mostly the United States, also France, fighting uh, these wars, but failing uh, in the wars of plunder. So technological convergence really does reduce the wars of plunder, but it also leads to more great power conflict, because as countries come together in power, they compete more aggressively for domination. Uh, Well, visions of that rising powers fear that they'll be held back by incumbent powers. That was Japan's fear in 1941. That was uh, Germany's uh, fear uh, in 1914. That was maybe China's realistic assessment now that the United States is trying to contain China's rise Uh, And so the United States is a deep threat to China's future. Incumbent powers fear they'll be overtaken by rising powers. Uh, That's uh, the so-called Thucydides trap. And the wars among the would-be hegemons, the leading powers, are the most destructive. So an example of a rising power through convergence is Germany's economic rise from 1870 to 1914, according to the same data of Angus Madison, that Germany crosses the UK GDP actually around 1905, and war ensues uh, around 1914. Of course, I won't get into all the debates and complexities of World War I, except to say it was a tragedy of great powers. Each of the powers felt extremely vulnerable to the others, and uh, especially Germany, France, 
UK and uh, the Habsburg Empire. Well, we're in a similar situation now. According to the International Monetary Fund, China overtook the United States in total output in 2011. These are GDP measured at purchasing power prices, not at market exchange rates. So that's just important as a technical matter. But it means that China is now the larger economy. I say, well, what do you expect? China has four times the population of the United States. Of course, it's going to be a larger economy, except if China remains perennially poor. Technically, if China remains at less than one-fourth the per capita income of the United States. But why should that be? China is enormously productive, creative, innovative, hardworking. The education system is excellent. So why wouldn't China rise in relative economic terms? And of course, they have. And now it's a larger power. As Mearsheimer predicted uncannily in 2002, he said this will lead to the onset of hostility. I have to say he was right. I was certainly wrong because I've been engaged with China for 40 years now. Many of my students are senior officials in China. Many are academics in China. And I could never imagine that we would have these tensions because China is not a threat to the world. Only in our newspapers is a threat to the world. Now our newspapers are hysterically pointing out that it is a threat to the world. By the way, I'm convinced by people who have never been to China these pundits, so-called. But as China got bigger, per se, China became an enemy. And a couple of days ago, the U.S. Congress held hearings on China's threat. Now, I guarantee those people, they probably don't even have a passport, those congressmen. They know nothing. So I'm just, I'm just giving you a hint. But Mearsheimer's right. Threat, counter threat, escalation of rhetoric, daily columns about the coming war. And sure enough, you have tragedy. So this is what convergence is bringing. Incidentally, the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are now larger than the G7 countries. This is rather remarkable. To my mind, great, because it means economic convergence taking place. It means a narrowing of the gap. It means that the strange divergence of the industrial era from roughly 1750, I'll say, until 1950, which produced the North Atlantic-led world, is over. Good. Why should the North Atlantic, with 10% of the world population, lead the world? That was obviously an artificial aspect. James Watt came up with a great invention. The North Atlantic developed on the basis of that. I'm oversimplifying a little bit. But the basic idea is that one small part of the world should not 
morally and ethically dominate the rest. And the mechanics of domination don't exist. But with this convergence comes tension and new forms of war. We have a war in Ukraine. What about if Russia escalates? Well, Russia says, whatever the U.S. does, we should escalate. Both sides escalate. That's Mearsheimer's point, that that is the rational action to take if each side is playing for its advantage, taking it as given what the other country is doing. So both sides escalate and both sides lose. Of course, Ukraine loses the most. So I don't have this really depicting exactly the Ukraine war, I want to be clear. But the idea is that the U.S. and Russia both escalate. What does this mean in practice? The U.S. pushes NATO enlargement and Russia pushes war to stop NATO enlargement. And you end up with a disaster for both sides. You look at that and say, guys, could you sit down and have a look? This isn't working very well for you. You're stuck in a disaster. Wouldn't it be good for both of you to chill, sit down? Maybe U.S., I have an idea, don't expand NATO. Just stay out. Russia, go home. Let Ukraine live. Stop fighting over Ukraine. If you say, as I do every day, why don't you negotiate? Well, you're called a Putin apologist. You're denied access to the Western media. You're deemed to be a fool and so forth. Frankly, we are in a tragedy. We are in the tragedy of great power politics. And it's getting worse because you end up with continuing escalation. The end of continuing escalation is nuclear war. There's nothing beyond that. But there's nothing that stops the escalation to that. If Ukraine were really to be armed to invade Crimea, well, there would then be nuclear war. You would be told moments before we all are destroyed, don't worry about it. My advice to you is worry about it. But we don't have an international relations theory that is adequate for this. That's what we are searching for. How many times has President Biden spoken with President Putin during the year since the war started? I'll give you a hint. It's less than one. It is zero. So this is not grown up. Five-year-olds would do better. We need to sit down to talk. It's surprising how talking is a human activity that makes a substantive difference in allowing a solution to a social dilemma. The other is a point that Ronald Reagan emphasized. Agreement is not based on trust. It's not based on naivete. It is trust, but verify. Finally, let me turn to the third kind of war, and that is inter-ethnic violence and the social structures of fear. Intercommunal violence is a special kind of war. It is conflict amplified by group identity. 
with very little communication between groups, open hostility, typically long-lasting, very high fear factors on both sides. Both sides are typically prisoners of history. As my wife says, those who can't forget history are condemned to repeat it, the opposite of the usual idea. Uh, when you are stuck in intercommunal conflict, if you can't forget the past that they did this to us, then there is the constant, constant provocation that more will come and that it's impossible to reach peace. There are very few structures of protection for communities, so the fear is very, very high. And we don't have a developed jurisprudence or political structure in most of history about group rights, which we need. So the United States does not have a concept of group rights, for example. In fact, we're now uh, going to probably see the end of so-called affirmative action in the United States because it violates individual rights will be the Supreme Court's likely decision. We don't have a concept of how in a diverse multi-ethnic community, different ethnicities can have rights. And those group rights were important. We've lost even the search for group rights in our ideologies of liberalism uh, and in our constitutional designs. And this makes intercommunal conflict more likely and persistent. Fear <laughs> is a deep driver of this. I don't have time to elaborate, but there are wonderful articles by psychologists, social psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, and uh, conflict resolution specialists emphasizing the role of fear really as a subcortical, fast, uh, reactive kind of decision-making. Uh, it's not an emotional act. It's a cognitive act. And fear derails that kind of cognitive act to an important extent. So what are some potential partial answers which nobody has found? I would say first, group rights, especially for minority groups within a political framework. The search for universal ethics, an ethics of tolerance, which is a special kind of ethics, which I'll come to in a moment. Intergroup dialogue, social and political structures of mediation, and shared culture. Uh, which is extremely important, arts, sports, music, literature. I really object to and disagree fundamentally with the call, for example, of excluding Russian athletes from the 2024 Olympics. This is the opposite of what we need to find peace in the world. And the Ukrainian demands to exclude Russian athletes or to stop playing Tchaikovsky or to stop Russian ballets is mind-bogglingly wrong. It's the opposite of what we need for peace. I am a huge believer that ancient wisdom can help us to find solutions, whether it is Confucius or the Buddha or Aristotle or the prophet uh, Isaiah, as imagined by Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, there is a commonality of views across the great face. 
and that is vital if we're going to find an end to this kind of conflict. I would argue that there are at least six shared pillars of ancient wisdom across the Greeks, Jewish and Christian traditions, Islamic faith, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, and other ancient wisdom traditions. First, they're all based on virtue ethics, that the way to well-being is by building our characters, which I think is a fundamental point. It was not the dominant form of ethics uh, in uh, the English and Germanic world in the last three centuries, but it's making a very strong comeback. And I think virtue ethics is the right form of ethics, uh, more than deontological uh, or utilitarian ethics, because it puts ethics as the core of individual responsibility. Second, it emphasizes that human struggle between lower urges, let's cheat and take advantage, uh, and a higher calling, let's cooperate because that's the right thing to do. It calls on reason of various kinds as being fundamental on the path to reaching that higher calling. It says that we need a vision of perfection. And this is where I think spirituality or religion is fundamental. And that is true from Plato and Aristotle through the various faiths that uh, God or the first mover or the idea of the ideal uh, form is the sense of perfection and the responsibility of humans to strive for something better. And I think ancient wisdom strongly emphasizes this point, the idea that religion and science are antithetical in some way is actually a modern idea. It is not the idea of ancient wisdom and fundamentally that there is a single human family. And I think not only uh, the modern genetics of uh, Homo sapiens proves this uh, and our knowledge of uh, the single human family in the migration from Africa around 70,000 years ago, but the idea that we can find a common spirit as the basis of our shared humanity, despite our distinctive faiths and cultures, is a shared view of all of these ancient wisdom traditions. We are the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the closest we've ever come as humanity to expressing a common shared ideal. This was brought to fruition by Eleanor Roosevelt, and she was absolutely remarkable and, and brought together philosophers and theologians uh, and uh, leaders from across the world and from all faiths to forge the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it is based on the idea that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. So just to conclude, we have different kinds of conflicts. We need different kinds of remedies. I believe that the United Nations uh, remains indispensable for our survival, even as its fragility is evident in the face of great power politics, private greed, and state impunity. So the world's very difficult. The UN has a very difficult time functioning 
in a difficult world, but it remains, in my view, our best hope for the universal human family. Let me close with words of President John F. Kennedy. I opened with his words, and I'll close with his words on my favorite speech of his. It was given on June 10, 1963. It was a speech asking the American people to change their attitudes towards the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union are human beings too who want peace. Can you imagine at the height of the Cold War, an American president saying we need to empathize with the other side so that we can forge peace? When he gave this speech, Nikita Khrushchev heard it, called the American envoy in Moscow, Avril Harriman, and said, this is the finest speech by an American president since Franklin Roosevelt. I want to sign a peace agreement with your president. Six weeks later, the partial nuclear test ban treaty was signed. This is how to get empathy, humanity, decency, speaking to the other side. So I'll just close with President Kennedy's words from that speech. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Jeffrey Sachs, Wars of Hegemonic Competition. He gave the Alama Iqbal Lecture at Oxford University in early March. Jeffrey Sachs, Columbia University professor, is an internationally renowned economist. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as John Mearsheimer, Richard Wolf, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, Noam Chomsky, and Vandana Shiva. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Jeffrey Sachs, Wars of Hegemonic Competition, and for the Howard Zinn classic book, A People's History of the United States, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's one 800 triple four one nine seven seven or go online our website alternative radio.org that's alternative radio.org printed transcripts pdfs and mp3s of this program are free of charge just call us at one 1977 Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with the Sabri Brothers of Pakistan, singing an Urdu poem by Alama Iqbal. <laughs>